Hello and welcome to this podcast, which at this time we don't really have a name for. Um, but I'm Max Vanskoy. I am Tim Gagne. And we're going to talk about uh, movies. Yes, we are. Film. Cinema. Cinema. <laughs> and um, yeah, this uh, this I, I think will be hopefully be fun. Um, I've been wanting to get into the podcasting game for a while. Um, actually tried a podcast a few years ago now at this point. Um, didn't really work out as we had kind of planned. This, this wasn't with Tim. This was with, uh, some other friends. This Um, is my first attempt. I'm completely alien to all of this. Yeah. (laughs) Like, what is this strange (laughs) device sitting in front of my mouth? (laughs) Uh, Yep. So we're in that phase, I guess, of the uh, of podcasting. So this podcast, I think, is designed to kind of explore our uh, our our love of of film and our knowledge. I, I consider myself to be somewhat knowledgeable about certain areas of of film, but one of the reasons why I really wanted to do this was because Tim has much much more. A wider range of, of knowledge and it goes deep runs deep in your in your blood i know a little about a lot of uh aspects i guess but not i don't know i wouldn't say there's really anything like i'm an expert on or anything and uh, there's definitely aspects that you have had a lot of experience with that i have not mm-hmm. um, i've still only ever seen one kurosawa film uh well, you know, maybe this uh, this podcast is a good opportunity to change yeah. those those things. Where I mean, there's a lot. That's another reason why I really wanted to do this. Was I mean, there was a time when I was watching tons of of films, like at least one one a day. Um, back when I was going to ACC around 2004, 2005, 2006, I was just consuming pretty much anything and everything. Um, but in recent years, I've kind of fallen out of the habit of just watching a lot of classic films and even more modern stuff. I don't really see absolutely everything that's out there. Um, so this hopefully will will afford us the opportunity to go back and look at stuff that we probably should have watched by now, yeah. but um, we haven't ever for whatever reason. So part of our idea for this podcast is... Every month, I think, we'll have like a, a theme of some kind where we'll explore films within that, within that, monthly, uh, within that monthly theme, I guess. Um, we're going to try to do one a week, sit down and discuss. Um, and I think it'd be cool to have like a, a movie that we set up ahead of time and say like, all right, for this, for this show, we're going to talk about, about this movie. And uh, and people listening can watch the film in the week leading up to it, and then we can discuss it and uh, and what have you. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> well, I mean, now we're talking about themes. So, starting oh, yeah. in October, uh, it seems like it would be natural to focus on the horror genre because Halloween is at the end of October. And yeah. it tends to be the time people focus on that. Which might be one of the reasons why I do not really like Halloween. What? Yeah. I'm not entirely sure why I don't like it, but that could be a reason. Like, the horror genre is something I'm very passionate about. I watch horror films all year round. I study the history of the genre. And it just it's like... It's like in the in the winter when like the Super Bowl and the Oscars come around and all of a sudden everybody is like an expert on mm-hmm. football and like Hollywood. So you kind of feel like October rolls around and suddenly everyone's like, you know. Now I like horror movies. Right, right. I'll make fun of them all year round. Mm. But now let's go watch a bunch of horror movies. That's that's crazy. I never realized that you kind of felt that way. I just assumed that Halloween rolls around like that's right up your alley because you are such a horror yeah. uh, connoisseur, I suppose. Which I don't even, I don't know why, and it might have just been, my birthday is October 28th. Hmm. And I'm wondering if just because, 
you know, my family is not, I don't come from like a wealthy family. So when it's time to buy birthday presents, they look for what's on sale. And what's on sale the end of October, um, the horror movies. And I'm wondering if it's just like, oh, they got me a bunch of like cheap horror movies on VHS when I was growing up. And maybe that's just what I tended to be exposed to a lot. So you got into the horror genre early on, a young age? Yeah, um, the there was a store in South Glens Falls, uh, New York, which is where we're both from, for those who don't know, um, called the, the Joy Store. It was a mm, yeah, I remember Joy Store. cheap-ass department store. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I used to buy like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle action figures and uh, Snailians. I don't know if anyone remembers Snailians. I don't even know what that is. Yeah, they're these little rubber like figures that were kind of like totally rip-offs of... Uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Like instead of having like Renaissance artist names, they were named after like U.S. presidents. Um, was there a show too, or was it just toys? I I don't know if there was actually a show. I I think that there like there wasn't. I think it was just like the toys. I'm pretty sure. But I know that like Chris Phelps, our friend Chris, he had some aliens. Um, <laughs> I wonder if they. I just assumed that the Joy Star was like the only place that. Sold them. That was the only place I ever saw them. But anyway. But yeah, they had, um, you know, they were department stores. They had all kinds of stuff, and they had inexpensive videos. And um, naturally, they would have like the cheap public domain videos. So mm-hmm. I ended up in elementary school getting like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari in elementary on school VHS and the uh, the silent 1925 Phantom of the Opera with Lon Chaney Sr. And like being exposed to these like classic horror films at a very young age, just my parents probably didn't even really know what they were. They're just like, "Oh, horror movies, and they're inexpensive. Let's give them to Tim." Like, and you know, they're old, they're silent, they're in black and white. What could be? There's nothing too horrific in in those. It's not like you know, there's <laughs> chicks taking their tops off and you know, but blood and still, gore and all that stuff. It left marks though, and uh, like seeing some of those great moments at a young age it's definitely like I don't know the influence I think is still in there now were you like afraid of them when you were a kid did they like freak you out did they give you bad dreams um not some of not those particular ones uh, I caught the original Nosferatu on PBS uh I might have been 11 maybe 12 like late at night and I was surprised that that creeped me out a lot. But it might have been the setting. I was alone in mm-hmm. the family living room with the lights out and everything. And, but it's still an effective film. And I was a young, impressionable kid. Although at that point, I'd already seen like um, the first two Friday the 13th films and some of the Nightmare on Elm Street. And how how like old were you at that time? Uh, well, when I saw the Friday the 13th films... I remember I was in third grade. My grandfather showed the first two to me. That's that's crazy. He fast-forwarded through anything with nudity, but <laughs> nothing else. <laughs> uh, so yeah. I got to see... The, it was, it was, uh, he taped them off of HBO. That's actually how I got to see a lot of movies, is uh, my, my father's father was obsessed with recording things on the VCR, hmm. and... Um, I'm dating myself so much on this, talking about the, these public <laughs> I, VHS I mean, and VCR and everything. So, uh, yeah, I yeah. mean, anyone from that generation, though, yeah. I mean, if you were born in the 80s, like, that's just how it was. But, like, every week, um, we would go over to his house uh, on Sunday, and the uh, the TV, not the TV guide, but the the TV supplement of the Post Star, the local newspaper, mm-hmm. um, he would hand it to me, and he would have me just circle every movie in there that I wanted to see. Nice. And he would tape them. But I still have, like, boxes of these old VHS tapes of things he would tape off of, like, channels I didn't have, like HBO. That's and, uh, that's um, pretty awesome. Yeah, I got it. That's pro- I probably saw more films growing up through him than anywhere else. And it was, it was a lot of horrible films, but <laughs> like, some really good ones. Horrible as in, like, 
deplorable kind of like yeah. nasty raunchy kind of stuff or no no not just like just he would bear that in mind he wouldn't like right, okay well i mean he's giving you friday the 13th like stuff yeah well uh, okay well violence was one thing which that tends to be a thing in american culture we tend to censor uh like sexual things more than violence we let a lot of yeah which, violence which get is to our really, children really weird but i mean i don't think it affected me in any way <laughs> Except, like, I can deal with it in movies now. Right, yeah. Where in real life, it there's still freaks not, me out. There's not much that shocks you anymore. Do you ever see a movie nowadays and see something that's just like, now that is just absolutely heinous? I haven't really... I get behind with watching recent films, even recent horror films, which I try not to do. Um, you try like, not to watch recent No, I try, I try not to get behind. I... I I, oh, want, like, I want I, to I catch gotcha. up on yeah. them, but so few of the horror films that I actually want to see play at any of our local multiplexes, mm-hmm. um, and I, I don't know, I'm, I'm not very technologically proficient. I have a computer from the late 90s still, <laughs> um, yeah, with got, Windows you, 2000 on it. And you got a big old brick of a laptop yeah behind me is a laptop that i paid 50 dollars for with windows me on it um, <laughs> with no internet connection whatsoever <laughs> it never has had internet connection so i can't i don't uh download movies not because of a moral mm-hmm. choice it's because i'm too lazy to upgrade I, I mean but even like i have access to all that technology and i don't really download like movies yeah um i mean i've got netflix i guess that's how i but even having that, I don't really watch a lot of, like, modern horror stuff. Um, like, I just recently saw Audition for the first time, which, when I look on, you know, on different people con- compiling lists of, like, you know, great sort of horror movies of, like, the more modern age, like, that's always on the list. And I kind of, I was surprised that I had never, I hadn't gotten around to seeing it for whatever reason. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but even that now is like, that was made in 1999. So, <laughs> and I still consider that to be sort of a modern <laughs> horror movie. So I, I guess I'm kind of behind on that, on the times too. Yeah. When, when I talk about like recent horror movies, I still include like, Oh, like there's, you know, what, what's referred to as torture porn, like the saw movies and mm-hmm. hostile and hostile Two, And it's like, those were still like, that's like eight or nine years ago at this point the yeah first yeah, the Zaw, yeah. <laughs> i guess the big sort of annualized franchise nowadays is the uh the paranormal activity which i still haven't seen any of i really i want to at least see the original one the, i saw the first one and it was really good i i that was you know movies don't really scare me in the same way that they once did it's very rare that i kind of watch a movie and I'm actually kind of terrified yeah. and that makes you want to leave the light on that night when you go to sleep. And it's, it's only happened to me like a couple of times that I can remember in my life. Um, back when I was maybe 11 or 12 or something. See, and I, I wasn't exposed to horror movies early on. It seems like you were, Yeah. <laughs> but like for me that it, it kind of happened later on like the first horror movie that i remember actually like sitting down and watching the whole thing like with the lights off was uh scream and i guess that came out 1996 but i don't know when exactly uh it came out on video or i think i think i it watched it on dvd i'm not exactly sure it was at the phelps's house and that just scared the shit out of me that whole opening sequence just yeah. really just freaked me out people in hindsight like to knock scream but it's a really effective film oh yeah totally and especially for i you know i was young i must have been like yeah 11 maybe something like that and it it really just it freaked me out anything where people are kind of creeping around outside and you see glimpses of them looking in the window at you the idea of you being you being watched and you can't see them like that's that's freaky and i think that kind of plays into the whole 
kind of like the the haunted house ghost stuff too where it's like there's this spirit who's watching you and stalking you but you cannot that's even worse because you can't how do you fight that you know with a guy with a knife you can kind of punch them and run away but that that's like coming back to like paranormal activity like it it freaked me out i was you know there are certain scenes and moments in that movie that are definitely uh genuinely scary which uh which was surprising as far as you know the um the new trend of the the found footage genre of movies the movies that i have seen in that kind of style like cloverfield um and paranormal activity and uh what was the blair witch project i've never seen the blair witch project I haven't seen the Blair Witch Project either. We that should is, watch that one. That's that... one of those like canonical modern horror films. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's one we should definitely watch this year. Yeah. And I have it on VHS. That <laughs> seems like that's probably the perfect way to watch that movie. I did see um The Last Broadcast, which is the movie that came out right before. Right before it, yeah, I haven't but, seen that either. And I really enjoyed that. Although it's not like at the time there was like a big deal made of like oh Blair Witch just like ripped off the whole style from last broadcast mm-hmm. stuff. The last broadcast is actually more of just like a straight documentary and not so much like there is like footage in it that's like found footage, but there's there's like even like a, a voiceover and, and there, yeah right. Um, and I, I I thought that was effective and I really enjoyed the last broadcast and um, from what I understand of Blair Witch, it's just the footage. Um, yeah, but see, I don't know. Yet, yeah, yeah. I actually watched it. For, yeah, my understanding also is that there's no, like, I think maybe there's a title card at the beginning that's kind of like, you know, these kids went out in the woods and they were never seen again. The only thing that remains is this video that they shot. That kind of thing. I should hope so. Because if, if, if there wasn't something at the beginning and you go into the movie theater <laughs> having no idea what it is, you're just like, what's happening? Well, I mean, like, people at the time, like, thought it was real. I remember when it was, like, a few months before it was released, there was, like, a lot of stuff online and, like, rumors of, like, oh, they just... That it was, like, this thing like, that these they kids found. actually died out there. They found this footage. And, like, and they're going to sh- like, me. show it in movie theaters. <laughs> and I remember making plans with some friends to actually, like, try and get down to Albany to, like, go see it at, like, a, like an independent movie theater. And mm. we were shocked that Open Weekend had actually ended up um opening in a wide distribution like at just like malls and stuff um and i ended up not even going to see it anyway and it's like 14 years later i still haven't yeah and i think it i believe that it was the uh it replaced teenage mutant ninja turtles as the highest grossing independent film at that point in time teenage mutant ninja turtles was an independent film yeah, I think it was New Line, wasn't it? And New Line was considered like a independent. Yeah, at that t- I think it was eighty nine or ninety was when huh. Ninja Turtles came out. They were still the known as like the studio that puts out like the Nightmare on Elm Street series and the John Waters movies. Like those were like their famous things. Hmm. I mean, all this stuff could be wrong, and it's we could just... cut it out if it is. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's just strange to think of. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as an independent film. Yeah. Because it's like, you know, it's a big budget. And it became such a big, like, merchandising thing. Yeah. And it became a cartoon uh, series. And, I mean, it started out as the co- the original comics were sort of, like, underground comics. Yeah, it, start- and then- it started as just, like, the creators just handing out, like, you know, their sort of Xeroxed ver- copies. Yeah. And they're very, like, dark when you read them. And, like, the, mm-hmm. uh, when... After it got bigger, there was the movie and the show and the the toys and everything. Uh, Archie Comics put out a Ninja Turtles comic. Yeah, and, I um, think they still have. That's the... what I actually I loved that series, but I mean, I, I was like nine years old at the time. I don't know if I'd like it now. It was pretty weird. The comic series. Yeah. Yeah, I've got some some comics from that from that time period, the early nineties. I mean, the, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were just all invasive at that time. It was crazy. But yeah, that's this weird. Uh, I think it was like in '78, the original John Carpenter's Halloween, like broke the records for like independent films, and then like 
a decade later Ninja Turtles, and then a decade later Blair Witch. I have no idea what it would be now because the industry has changed so much since the late 90s that like yeah, things well, make outrageous amounts of money in the opening weekend alone just because of yeah, the, the, the because that's the up. only way that they they make their business within yeah. that opening weekend, and then everything else is just you know, if it fails there, then they just give up on it. Um, it seems like every year there's a, I don't know about independent specific, but like every year, whatever the biggest budget or the biggest uh, grossing movie, which often is the biggest budget movie, um, will. Like, oh, well, this is now the highest grossing film of all time. And the next year, it's like, oh, now this is. Yeah. And now this is. And for decades, it was things like, oh, well, Gone with the Wind, and then, like, Sound of Music, and Jaws. And Jaws, and, and then... But now it's just... Star Wars. Whatever. Yeah. And then uh, now it's Avatar. It's still Avatar? Yeah, it's still Avatar. Was that 2009? Yes. Yes, it was. Right. Yep. It was, yeah, winter 2009. But, like, last year... Was it last year already? The Avengers came out, and that was... That was close. I think that sits at number two right now. And are they factoring um, DVD sales and things like that? No, I think it's it's still the uh, the theatrical run. But that also accounts for it being re-released into theaters. Like, I know, like, after the re-releases of Star Wars, they climbed up higher on the, on the list. Mm. And even just when they released um, the 3D version of Episode One that climbed a little higher up the uh the highest grossing all time list. So it's kinda hard for older films yeah, to reclaim their uh <laughs> like I'm You'd ha- it would have to be like a really big movie. Like The Wizard of Oz was just re released, but only for a limited time. Right. And um Which I don't how how was that by the way? You went to go see it. I did. I saw it in IMAX three D. And, um, there were some missed opportunities, I think, like the, when the Wicked Witch first appears in Munchkin Land and like, you know, everybody's like singing and all happy and they're, you know, the Ding Dong, the Witch is Dead song. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's a big like burst of smoke and mm-hmm. the witch is there and like watching it, uh, on TV as a little kid, that was always one of like the scary parts. Oh yeah. Especially definitely. after you'd seen it a few times before, you're like, you know, it's coming. Yeah. And everybody's all happy, and you're like, "Oh, it's not." And just be the way that the smoke long. looks, it's got this really nice kind of like liquid. It almost looks like liquid yeah. smoke. You know, it's just really but they, creepy. They weird. did nothing. There was no 3D involved in that shot, and I'm wondering if it's because I mean, like, there the so, shot was like in 3D, like there. But I'm wondering if it's because like there were Munchkins in the foreground, and mm-hmm. they were like coming at us, and the smoke was in the background. It seems like they could have done something to enhance it. Like if they're if you're gonna enhance, so they it, didn't which, give the smoke like any sort of depth to it. It was, it was just like a smoke. Flat <laughs> it was smoke. weird. And when there's like little things like in the it's probably one of the harder things to kind of convert. I would imagine. Yeah, in the under the rainbow scene. Uh, under the rainbow. Over the rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Under the Rainbow was a god-awful Chevy Chase film about the making of Wizard of Oz, which no one should see ever. Stay away. Wait a minute. Um, (laughs) Chevy Chase? And I think Carrie Fisher in, I think it was like 1980. Starred in a movie called Under the Rainbow. Under the Rainbow. Which is about like a, a, a Nazi little person who uh, like gets onto the set of Wizard of Oz as a munchkin, and he's, he's like a Nazi spy, because it's 1939. And Chevy Chase is trying to stop him or something. I don't know. It was a horrible movie. So it's, <laughs> it's, so it's the, a comedy. At the time, it? the plot of the movie takes place in well, 1939, yeah. while Wizard of Oz is being shot. Yes. So do they have, like, um, is there, like, a an actress playing, like, Judy Garland? Not that I recall. I don't recall any, like, real-life people being portrayed. I think early on, maybe somebody was supposed to be Victor Fleming, but they didn't... They showed him filming Gone with the Wind early on, and then, like, oh, his next film's going to be Wizard of Oz, but which is only technically true, because he was involved in those... His name is the name on both those films as director. Mm Mm-hmm. But like he came in later on, I think both of the movies. Yeah, right? Gone with the Wind was originally supposed to be George Cukor, and there's some footage, the famous crane shot of uh, a 
all the sick people like that's um, that was Sam Wood directed at least that scene and then Wizard of Oz uh, let's see Victor Fleming I don't even remember who was George Cukor was involved in that at some point too and Victor Fleming directed most of it and this all the scenes in Kansas were King Vidor really yeah oh. which getting back to the scene the in, Can- in Kansas <laughs> with a song over the rainbow right. right in that scene <laughs> there's a shot that I never really thought much of where you know Judy Garland is singing and she leans against a haystack mm-hmm. and the haystack in 3d is ridiculous and I'm sitting there in the theater like oh my god that is an amazing haystack <laughs> and I think that maybe they shouldn't have done that I should not have been so entranced with the haystack because that's like you know that's the that's the big moment in Kansas anyway like you yeah know, she's singing and some run over the rainbow and it just I was so and you just can't get over the how fucking awesome the haystack looks yeah it was like coming at me like just all the different bits of straw like so there, so know. they so how overall how was the 3d effect did it do you think it enhanced the the experience of the movie Overall, I enjoyed the experience. Um, I don't know if it was necessary to have done. The restoration itself and re-releasing it in theaters, mm-hmm. I'm completely behind that. I don't know about making it 3D. Like, things like the poppy field in 3D blew my mind. <laughs> Just like when it cuts to the shot of the poppy field, mm-hmm. it was almost like... Just the angles of it and everything were almost like... I was look like the... All the seats in the theater ahead of me were just were getting poppies. narrower, and then they hit the. It was yeah, it was almost like looking into a mirror, and like the whole movie theater was poppies. If that makes sense, I don't know how to explain that. Yeah, it doesn't quite make sense. But. Okay, well, <laughs> but um, that's just that's the poppies. Yeah, thinking. it's it's interesting because like I mean, once they started converting modern movies to three D, right, and then all of a sudden you hear George Lucas talk about you know. Well, I'm gonna re-release Star Wars in 3D. I'm gonna I'm gonna redo it. Um, that kind of well, and then James Cameron did Titanic in 3D. The idea that like at some t- point or another, all of these classic movies will be sort of redone in 3D and re-released, especially if we go into the future where like we have 3D TVs yeah. in the living room, um, and all of our devices have like 3D displays and that kind of stuff. Um, more and more content will be not only produced in 3D, but converted into 3D. What what do you what do you think about that? Like, would you go see something like Casablanca in 3D or Citizen Kane? I would go see Citizen Kane in 3D. So that actually that, would that probably would be, look really good. That I would just the life of. A person whose job it was to convert that movie to 3D would just be horrible. There's so much going on. There's so many, almost like so many of the shots in there are like effect shots mm-hmm. that you don't even notice. Yeah, I mean, I think about a lot of different moments in it, and a lot of the sets would just look incredible. And several of the shots are like several shots laid over each other, like the like the scenes with um, oh, what is it when Right after, um, the opening night at the opera, and um, Kane is finishing um, Leland's review, and I believe like the the close up of Orson Welles like in the foreground, I believe is a separate shot from Joseph Cotton in the background. Mm. And that was like in order to get the focus, and I'm like wondering how. Because that... one of the one of the goals that Orson Welles was trying to do was to create a movie where everything was in focus. Yeah. Where there's like nothing out of focus. Because usually in in films you have like a certain depth of field where, you know, sometimes the foreground is in focus and everything else in the background is out of focus, or vice versa. And it's pretty much like an almost impossible task to try to get everything. Yeah. And they were like at that point entirely had, in focus. Like um the director William the directors William Wyler and John Ford and the, the cinematographer Greg Tolan had basically spent 
the second half of the 1930s trying to perfect that, and by the time of 1941 with Citizen Kane, it's like, we can do this. To an extent, mm-hmm. they still had to do some of those shots where you had to, like, cut it up. Why, why do you think he wanted to really do that? Like, <laughs> I mean, it just seems like a strange kind of thing to, to want to do because it just flattens everything. Well, I know that he was influenced by Stagecoach, which had come out in 1939, mm-hmm. um, in which they tried to do more with um, Deep Focus, and they had, like, you know, the big thing was, oh, we can see the ceilings and things like that. Right, yeah. I think it might have been, because, like, if you watch, like, some of, like, the films that Greg Tolan worked on um, in the late 30s, like, you'll see that he was trying to, like, achieve this effect. And when he was paired up with Orson Welles to make Citizen Kane, I'm wondering if he talked Welles into it hmm. and was like, oh, well, like, I know you like Stagecoach, and here's some other films where I've tried to, like, achieve this effect. Like, wouldn't you want to do this? And maybe, I'm, I'm wondering if, like, not that Welles himself wasn't a genius on his own, but, like, this particular thing, it's possible that Toland was like, hey, you're a director who has full creative control and outrageously has final cut let's take advantage of this and just try and experiment right and like let's see if i can finally perfect this thing i've been working on yeah that's but this is just my own conjecture i've i mean i wasn't there it reminds (laughs) it reminds me of um like stanley kubrick shooting barry Lyndon and trying to shoot it with completely all natural light so no artificial lighting whatsoever and it's a period piece right so indoor nighttime scenes had to be lit by just candlelight so he developed this whole uh camera rig with like a lens that was developed by nasa to shoot these scenes by candlelight but with that like there's a clear sort of look that you're trying to do because he was looking at like paintings that were done of the time that were just completely lit by you know sunlight and candlelight and stuff and he was trying to make it look like that like of the time um so it's kind of i don't know if it's more justifiable to go through all that trouble to try to achieve that look but it's understandable i'm just it's curious that like you know you'd spend so much time trying to do this thing uh for citizen kane and kubrick's in kubrick's deal with warner brothers did he have final cut on all of his films i don't i don't know exactly it seems like he would have just because of like that's <laughs> just because of the, the way long run times and yeah um because it seems like if if you have Final Cut, why not experiment on these things? Yeah, no, it, I mean, it makes sense. And, I mean, these are guys who, like, just, they were in love with everything about the craft of the filmmaking. I mentioned earlier how I first sort of got into film, or how, looking back, I mm-hmm. believe I did, um... You spoke briefly about, like, watching film as, like, a child, but, like, what, uh, like, what do you think it was that, like, got you into it seriously? I know that you're a big Star Wars fan. Yeah. And I I enjoy Star Wars, but I've never really considered myself a huge Star Wars fan. I I still haven't seen the prequels and um, a lot of, like, the (laughs) offshoots and stuff. Maybe we'll tackle that. (laughs) I saw, I saw, I did see Revenge of the Sith, actually. I forgot about that. Which I thought was okay. Um, but it, well, that's because it is okay. Okay. Um, um, but is that, um, like, no, was that, was that... Is that a big part of your... Uh, film perspective? Film and yeah, def- definitely. Um, I mean, when I think back, like... When you're a kid, and I think it's probably similar for most everybody. Like, you have a sort of stable of, of movies that you end up watching, like over and over and over again yeah um you know for a lot of people you've got like you know, like disney movies the classic kind of animated films um for me it was there you know there's indiana jones trilogy um the batman films um and but but out of everything that i would would watch like star wars was was that was was it right. it was really I, I was obsessed 
with Star Wars. And actually, one of my earliest memories of anything, I think it was like either the first or second day of kindergarten. And I remember walking outside of the school. I think it was either like before school or afterwards. I'd always walk to and from school. Um, I remember talking with people, like my classmates, trying to explain to them what Star Wars was, <laughs> but I didn't even know like what it was called because <laughs> I, you know, I was just like a young kid. But I, I remember like trying to ask people, like, "Have you ever seen this thing where like there's like this big hairy guy, and then there's like <laughs> a yellow robot and a little little blue robot that only he just beeps and." people would just kind of look at me like, you know, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> um, but I didn't even know, like, what it was. It was just kind of this, like, I don't know, this this thing that I, that I watched. And um, that's actually how I met pretty much all of my friends that I'm still friends with today was really through, like, a mutual love of, uh, of Star Wars. Like Chris and Nate... Um, Chris Phelps and Nate Wright, they were both in my kindergarten class. And the discovery of like, oh, like you know this thing too? Like you've seen this as well? Like it's not just like this weird thing that my family just like, you know, has in their house. There's a strange sort of discovery that it's like you're, you are also sharing in the experience. It's a strange, I don't know, it's weird. Because um, as a kid, you you don't really know what's normal and what's not normal yeah you kind of assume things that you do in your house are things that either everybody does or nobody (laughs) else does (laughs) you know and so with like with movies i mean that's really one of the great sort of bridges to people is that like oh you know this thing too it's like yeah I i know that thing like you'd go over to somebody's house and they have like you know star wars figures that you've never seen before you're like what the fuck is this? Like, where did you get this? Like, how do you have this? This is amazing. (laughs) Um, Like, I remember going over to somebody's house and they had, like, Ewok action figures. Yeah. And I had never, at the time, like, in the early 90s, they, like, re-released, well, they released, like, a new set of, like, Star Wars action figures because there were the original ones when the movies first came out. Um. But at the time, like, they hadn't gotten to, like, Return of the Jedi yet. They hadn't, like, done any new Return of the Jedi figures. So I had never even seen, like, an Ewok figure. So I just remember being in someone's house and seeing, like, one of the old Ewok figures from, like, Return of the Jedi when that first came out. And just being, like, flabbergasted that it existed. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I mean, I was just totally obsessed with Star Wars and... um, one of the things that it was actually that was that was the first movie where like I thought about a movie from the other side of it, not just like the fun the final product of it, but like what went into making it. Yeah. And the realization that like oh there was somebody who who made this thing, and there are people like the people who you see like Luke Skywalker. That's not actually Luke Skywalker. That's a guy named Mark Hamill. And it was like whoa, you know. And I think, like, part of that was probably, like, seeing Han Solo and Indiana Jones and realizing that they were, like, the same person. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, Harrison Ford, actually, you know, that's probably, like, the first person that I kind of knew, the first actor that I, like, knew the name of. Um, But I I knew from an early age, like, all the whole cast of Star Wars, you know, Mark Hamill, Carrie Fisher, even David Prowse. And James Earl Jones, because like my dad was a huge Star Wars fan, yeah, um, and my mom, and they would uh, kind of tell me these things, and, <laughs> and even like Kenny Baker, who is the actor who plays R two D two, he's basically just like the the guy in the <laughs> in the can, <laughs> uh, Anthony Daniels, and you know I knew all of those guys, and um, and I knew George Lucas. And I had a poster hanging on my wall for all I was growing up. It's just it was a beautiful painted picture of George Lucas's face 
with um, Star Wars characters and Indiana Jones characters around around him. And uh, yeah, he was definitely like my first like film hero, um, filmmaker hero. It just seemed like George Lucas could just do absolutely no wrong. Isn't it horrible then when they do wrong? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for me, for me, um, it was Tim Burton. Oh yeah, yeah. Because it was when, um, like, the first Batman movie was mm-hmm. coming out. I was I turned seven that year, um, and I got like the uh, like the comic book adaptation of the movie and um, a big. Actually, I sometimes forget how big of an influence on like just my whole life this was but i don't even know if they still do this but movies like big movies used to have trading cards mm-hmm. that come out when they're released they might still do this i don't think so the batman trading cards yeah i have some yeah they would have like excerpts from scripts for part of that like they'd have a picture of a scene on the front and on the back it would say like like interior museum mm. they, they like it would you'd look at it and be like, oh, what, what it, this is what a script is? Yeah, yeah. And then, like, the first cards in the series basically told the story of the movie. And then there was, like, a bunch at, the, like, if you were looking at them in the order of, like, the numbers that were on the cards, like, there were a bunch at the end that were, like, oh, this is Kim Basinger. She plays Vicky Vale. Mm. This is Jack Nicholson. He plays the Joker. And then it would talk about, like, different setups and how and it would talk about stuntmen and effects and things yeah and it was it was amazing just thinking so, of like what goes into so it that was kind of your first glimpse uh yeah the behind the scenes and also just like the card that like introduced tim burton in that mentioned like oh he had also done pb's big adventure and beetlejuice and mm. when i was little i loved those movies and i was yeah. like oh my god the same person did these he yeah, must that... be a genius <laughs> <laughs> that, that was always such a fun moment of realization when even when i realized i remember when i realized that like george lucas made both star wars and indiana jones yeah it was just like whoa like so it's like did he did he also do like everything else that i love you know was he you know did he just do everything or when realizing that um the voice of miss piggy was also the voice of yoda that was like that was a big mind fuck moment for me yeah, I could see that happening. It'd be very confusing for a child. But um, yeah, for me, like the first real like glimpse into like the behind the scenes like making of a movie was I had, we had a VHS that was the making of I think it was just called the oh, making of Star Wars. It wasn't from Star Wars to Jedi. From Star Wars to Jedi, that's what it was called. Yeah, okay. from Star Wars to Jedi. It was mostly about the making of Return of the Jedi. Yeah, it was a lot of uh, behind the scenes film, uh, behind the scenes footage of uh, of them making all the 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 monster, like the, the you know the the co- the creature costumes from Jabba's palace and how they made Jabba the hut work, that giant puppet, and um, you know the actors who played the Ewoks and just everything. I mean, in that movie, when when you're a kid, like Return of the Jedi is, or at least it was for me, that was my favorite because. It had, the, had most creatures. the most exciting sort of visual feast going on. Um, cause, you know, you, you've got like Jabba's Palace where there's just all these like cool creatures around. And then you have the Ewoks and they have all these cool traps and they're like, you know, swinging around in the trees and doing all that stuff. So, I mean, seeing that, that was definitely one of the first moments. And I, we watched that tape, me and my brother, Luke, we watched that the making of tape probably like just as much as we watched the actual movies and we watched those movies like those the i still have the original vhs's that we have um and those are just they're in rough shape because we just watched them over and over and over and over again and that making of i mean it really thinking back it really was like a big influence into me wanting to get into the making of films and just understanding more about it Um, because it just seemed like such a fun place to work, you know, like (laughs) I get to, you you get to go to work and like hang out with all the creatures and just do all this, uh, 
crazy stuff. It was just endlessly fascinating. Another um, sort of like young influence, like speaking of like creatures and things, and speaking of Miss Piggy, just watching everything Jim Henson was involved with, mm-hmm. um, and like everything with the Muppets, it was. He was one of those people who was very open about like. Yes, these are characters you can believe in, but we are more than willing to show you how they were put together. Yeah, we will stand yeah. right next to them. You'll still believe that this puppet is really like a living thing, even though I'm standing right here. And, yeah, it's like, really funny to watch um, footage of like live, like kids. Yeah, in person with like a puppet, like Sesame Street characters or whatever, and the puppeteer is like literally standing right next to them, but the kid doesn't look at at the puppeteer they're just looking at you know they're looking at elmo or grover or whoever the character is cookie monster and they treat him like a real person yeah but i mean and it, it is great that jim henson wasn't all about like preserving that illusion to the point where it's like you know I'm a, a magician never tells his how he does his tricks because that also was definitely like a big influence in like wanting to know how that stuff is done because you'd see various like i think um nate uh our friend nate i would go over to his house and he had like a behind the scenes tape of like some muppet special that they was it secrets of the muppets maybe Uh, i had one secrets of the muppets where jim henson hosted it and like he actually demonstrates how a green screen works and he takes like a green tie and puts it in front of himself yeah and it's like this is it's like it's almost like something that just should be like shown in all elementary schools to teach children about totally totally and especially the effect side of it especially in this day and age too where like that kind of stuff is more pervasive now more than ever i mean like it's easier now to like make a movie or get into do any like there's so many different kinds of video jobs um and when you're a kid like it you almost don't even realize that like that is a job that is available to do um it's yeah i mean it's kind of important to like show that to kids because it it, it was just i loved that stuff growing up it was just uh any chance to see any kind of behind the scenes making of um, I just ate it up another big thing for me was um, I don't know if uh, they had these at your elementary school but in the library of my elementary school they had these uh, like orange hardcover books by a guy named Ian Thorne and each one focused on a different monster and it would tell the story of whatever like whichever movie that monster was most known for. It mostly did the universal monsters. Mm-hmm. So, um, like the one on Dracula, it would focus on like the 1931 Todd Browning version of Dracula, like tell the story. It would have some great stills from it in the first half of the book. And the second half would talk about Bram Stoker writing the novel. It would talk about Hamilton Dean doing the, the stage play and um, Stoker's widow trying to get all the prints of Nosferatu destroyed because it was made outside of the copyright. Really? And it just told the backstory of it. And then it went on and would talk about like some of the follow-ups like Dracula's daughter, son of Dracula, Mm -hmm. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein and the hammer Dracula movies in the fifties and sixties. And there was, I remember there was Dracula. There was a Frankenstein one. Um, There was one that was just, mad scientists oh that's cool and there was several of these books and um they had like a few of them at my elementary school i mostly uh, went to the library and they for the children's section of a public library in a small town the film section or the film book <laughs> section was very <laughs> impressive yeah i don't remember ever seeing anything like that in my elementary school library i'm sure that there was i just i don't i don't remember and what sucks about a lot of libraries is they like to get rid of older books Mm -hmm. and there actually is like 
there are a lot of these books out there used very expensive now because like I've been reading my favorite magazine is Rue Morgue magazine which is a, a magazine that focuses on horror like mostly movies but also literature music everything mm-hmm. um, and they had an article maybe a year ago maybe two years ago just talking about those Ian Thorne books and a lot of people responded to it and were like oh my god I remember those that's how I got into horror <laughs> that's, that's such, how that's I got into horror such an obscure like, thing to have a memory of yeah but like that it would talk about behind the scenes stuff like just that and like the batman cards and just and star wars documentary jim henson being mm-hmm. so open and everything it was just like uh, just really opened children's eyes yeah because from there like then you want to know the stories behind other movies right and other filmmakers and you're like oh you know george lucas well his, he's pals with Steven Spielberg. You know, who's Steven Spielberg? Well, he did E.T. and, you know, Jaws. And then you start to realize, like, oh, this guy did, like, all these things. And then from there, you just, you know, it just snowballs into wanting to know everything about everyone. So, yeah, but um, back to horror films. I mean, yeah. it, it's surprising to me when I heard you talk about how when you were a kid, you watched all this stuff. Because for whatever reason... Well, the the Universal ones, I read those books years before I actually got to see the movies. Ah, yeah. Just because they weren't... In the early 90s, they were, like, re-released and, for VHS, pretty decent editions. Mm -hmm. And I started collecting those. At what Um, age were you collecting those? um, That would have been... I moved out of my first house when I was 10... And I definitely, so like, I don't know, nine or 10 was when I started. Wow. I definitely are, I have a very distinct memory of watching Frankenstein meets the Wolfman with my father in our first house. So I at least had that one before I was 10 and that was not like the first one I got. So yeah, it's just like at that age, like I just, for whatever reason, and it wasn't that my parents like didn't allow me and my brother Luke to uh it's not like they forbade us to watch like horror movies I just um I just was always scared of them I think yeah like I remember they my parents used to watch this show on PBS called Mystery I don't know if anybody remembers it I've talked to some of my friends about it um was it the one uh, like Vincent Price hosted it? And it was like yeah, Vincent Price hosted it. Um, I think for a while, somebody else took over at some point. But it had this like really creepy intro. It was like animated. It was like black and white animated intro. Yeah, uh, Edward Gorey designed it, right? I think so. I think we might have had this discussion before where you where you yeah. told me that, and I was like, oh, and then I went and watched it on youtube or something because i hadn't thought about it in years but and the the music and just like the whole sound of it was just so creepy um every time i would hear the music like me and luke would just dart up the stairs and just like i remember i'd hide in bed and i'd hear like you know the the strange sounds there's like you know the the animation was like um you know going through like a graveyard and they're like um people at like a dinner party and uh you just kept seeing like different like a skeleton like a skull or like a black cat it wasn't anything too like you know serious or anything like that um or really intense just but the whole atmosphere of it was just really like freaky and there was a woman up on top of the uh of this like castle or a, a mansion i guess um and she just the way that she was like laying there um with like lightning behind her and she was like help me help me oh <laughs> and it's just the way that she said it just like just scared the shit out of me oh for whatever reason and um so like there was that and like we we tried to watch the movie return to oz yeah <laughs> um the pseudo sequel to wizard of oz and my family rented it one night i think um and me and Luke got to the point in which Dorothy arrives at, I think it's at the Emerald City, and it's all sort of, like, decrepit and run over, or, like, right. over overgrown and stuff like that. 
and there are the wheelers skating about. I hated them. I didn't see the movie until I was a teenager, but when I was little, my sister and I would look at like the picture book for the movie at the library. Really? We would the there was a picture of it was wheelers, that's what they were called. I think they're called wheelers, yeah. That picture just bugged we it had to skip that page. And it, the way that it was, it's like it, that scene when they're first introduced plays out like a horror movie because like Dorothy walks in and she's like nobody's around, it's, the city's abandoned and you know it's all quiet and then you just hear like, you know, the weird skating sound off and she like looks over and it like, you know, the camera pans quickly, a swish pan and you see just like a quick like little glimpse of like a weird looking foot <laughs> dart behind uh the uh the around the corner. And the wheelers just like, I don't even think we got to the point where they are actually re- fully revealed. Like just the whole buildup of seeing them, we just got more and more scared. And then finally, when like they, you know, they popped out, and they're like kind of freaky. They're like, I think the way that they did it was just like people. They had all fours on stilts. It's like your feet and your arms on stilts, and the stilts ended with like roller skate wheels yeah. or like rollerblade kind of wheels or something. So they'd kind of like zip around through the through the city um but just they they were weird shape and just that just scared the hell out of us we didn't even get through the whole movie we stopped there we ran upstairs so i think like my parents just thought that we were just scared of everything so i just stayed away from horror movies um and i i'd hear about movies and think that they were like horror movies and i just stay away from them like edward scissorhands yeah i was convinced for the longest time that it was a horror movie um, because my friend, uh, Andy was like, oh yeah, have you seen Edward Scissorhands? I'm like, no. It's like, it's about this guy who has like scissors for arms. <laughs> like his forearms were the blades, you know, yeah. he had, like one, one giant pair of scissors. And he like, he kills the president. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it just sounded, it just sounded like this like horrible, like, I don't know. I, the way he described it was like a horror movie. He said he killed the president, which I, so I don't know what the hell movie he was watching. But and I think for for a long time I always got Edward Scissorhands and Nightmare on Elm Street kind of like confused yeah, in my sense. head. Like Freddy Krueger and Edward Scissorhands, just like I thought that, that it was like the same thing. And even like Friday Thirteenth and Nightmare on Elm Street, I thought was like the same kind of thing. Actually, one of the one of the earlier. Uh, it's not exactly a horror movie that I do remember seeing that my family owned on, on VHS was uh, The Burbs. Yeah. Um, with Tom Hanks. Joe Dante. Joe Dante. Right. Yeah, direct, the, the director. Um, and that has, like, you know, some horror elements to it. There's one scene where I think it's like a dream sequence where Tom Hanks chainsaw. falls asleep, like, watching, oh, like, a horror movie kind of thing. Right. And then he wakes up and he's, like, walking through his house and there's a killer with like a chainsaw like chasing him like the chainsaw comes bursting through the wall and it's like chasing him down the stairs i think it's been a while since we've seen the burbs but i always thought that and i think the kill like the killer that they show is like he kind of looks like jason Voorhees, maybe i think he has some sort of mask on. he has like, like some kind of a mask i don't know if it was a goalie mask but it was something like that i always thought it's that been a long time that's so. who jason Voorhees was Okay. Like the guy, <laughs> as he, as exactly as he looks in the burbs. Whenever someone would talk about Jason, I always pictured that. And so for a long time, I thought that Jason's signature weapon was a chainsaw. Which, of course, it's not. I don't even know if he ever uses I'm a chainsaw. I'm trying to think right now. <laughs> I don't he's, think he does. The, he's used some random things. He used uh, He used some sort of power hedge tool. Trimmer hedge trimmer or something yeah, in part yeah. 7. Yep. <laughs> but I don't know... Uh... But I, I he was attacked by a chain in part two. Ginny goes after him with a chainsaw, but then the motor messes up or something, and then she just has to throw it on the ground and run away. <laughs> yeah, so it was it's it's kind of weird. Um, but in my mind, like just all of the those sort of '80s kind of slasher killers and horror icons, just all were like one character in my mind. It was just like they were all just like this one thing. Um, which is weird. And later on, when I kind of became more interested in horror films, I it was fun kind of discovering all of those things. 
um, discovering what, sep- you know, separating in my mind, like, oh, this is what Friday the 13th is, and that's Jason Voorhees, and this is what Freddy Krueger is, and this is Nightmare on Elm Street, and Leatherface, and, you know, expanding out from there, Michael Myers. And it's weird, because I saw Scream before I knew, like, what any of that stuff was. So maybe that had something to do with it. But, not, um, not to dwell on this, but I just remembered in, at the, towards the end of part five, the girl at the end also has a chainsaw and goes after Jason. Although, spoiler alert, <laughs> it's not actually Jason. It's some guy named Roy. God damn it, Roy. So apparently it, Jason would get attacked by chainsaws regularly, but not... Has, has he ever picked up a chainsaw himself? <sighs> we'll have to investigate that. <laughs> Next time on the yeah. podcast. Um, no, but that's that's actually a pretty good place to wrap it up. I think we've been talking for about an hour. It's probably pretty good. Okay. Um, so next time we'll have we'll come back with a uh, with a, with a movie. We'll we'll decide on a movie right now um, that we're gonna watch between now and next week, and we'll watch it and we'll come back and we'll talk about it. So what do you want to watch? Uh, well, there's the the Blair Witch Project. Um, there's that, yeah. There's also um. In I think two weeks sometime the next two weeks the new version of carrie is coming out and i know that you have not seen the brian de palma version i have never seen the original carrie i love the original 1976 brian de palma carrie i have not seen the one from about 10 years ago with angela bettis in it was that a made for tv thing it was it was actually apparently intended as a pilot so apparently the ending is different but i have not seen it i love angela bettis um, so I'm curious to see how she performed in that. Like in the upcoming one, I'm a big fan of um, Chloe Grace Moritz. Although I, it's right, odd she, that they're casting her as that character. But she was in um, Hugo, right? She was in Hugo, the Kickass movies. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Hit Girl, uh, Dark Shadows, Dark Shadows. Um, and it's directed by Kimberly Pierce, who did Boys Don't Cry. Which ironically made me cry because it was such a good movie. And no, well, no, what does that say about you, Tim? <laughs> what indeed? I'll answer that question next. <laughs> okay, so why don't why don't we? When does the new Carrie come out? I think the eighteenth. I'm not entirely sure. We could always look that up. <laughs> okay, well, why why don't we watch Carrie? Okay, um, and we'll come back with Carrie. All right. Um, cool. So I'm excited to see that actually. That's that's really like one of the biggest sort of horror classics that I have I have not seen. And um, the new one things. My expe- my expectations are not very high for the new one just because it was supposed to ha- it it had been shown at like a previous screening last fall and it was supposed to be released I think this past March and they kept pushing it back. That's not usually a good sign. Yeah, that's. Because what will happen is, like, they'll test screen it. Yeah. And then they'll be like, hmm, didn't really play very well. Let's uh, let's do some more editing or do some reshoots or do whatever to it. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, none of the... It's very rare to, to have those new kind of remakes of the old classics that are actually worthwhile. Although in the 80s, there were a lot of remakes of movies from the 50s, which were Which great. actually were awesome, yeah. The Thing, The Fly, The Blob. Yeah. I love the 80s versions of those. Invaders from Mars has its moments. That's not a great, that Toby Hooper version. It's not great, but it's, as far as, like, remakes go, I mean. So you, the, the impulse is to be like, oh, it's just a remake, let's not pay attention. Yeah, because, I mean, sometimes in, inherent, in there. inherently, like, remaking something isn't bad it's just that remakes tend to be bad if it's such a such a tricky line to walk because so often the um the reason they exist is just money there are occasions when maybe somebody's like oh i think this movie was a missed opportunity let's do it again Mm -hmm. and try to add more to it like i mean when hitchcock remade his own the man you knew too right. much. Yeah. There were things he wanted to do with that uh, and like focus on different aspects of it that he didn't do in the 30s one. 
1941 Maltese Falcon that John Huston did. That was the third version of that movie. Really? In a decade. They, they had done one called the Maltese Falcon in the early 30s. In uh, the late 30s, they did one with Betty Davis. Uh, I don't recall the name of it. Satan was a lady, something. The devil was a lady. I, I don't remember. <laughs> Uh, and then the one that everybody, when you say the Maltese Falcon, everyone thinks of the one with Humphrey Bogart, right. Peter Laurie, and everybody yep. that John Huston wrote and directed in 1941. So sometimes there's great movies that like... Yeah, definitely. It's just when when you're remaking something already, that's already so uh, iconic, Yeah. like for instance, like the new Evil Dead movie, Right. it's just so hard because how much of it, how much of the original do you follow by the book? Like you, there's basically two ways you can go. You can remake it, sort of pull a Gus Van Sant and do Psycho exactly the way that Psycho was. Yeah. You know, so there's films that follow too closely to the original, or there's films that you'll call... I can't think of one off the top of my head, like a movie that just has is only associated by name, and really it just has nothing to do with the original whatsoever, or it goes off on completely different tangent. In both scenarios, you're going to disappoint some fans. But, uh... And there's the ones where originally it was in another medium, like a novel, and it became a film, mm-hmm. and then they remake the film, and yeah. it's like, oh, maybe they're trying to get it's closer. Not like, quite... all the different versions of Dracula out there. Right, right. It's not, like, so much a remake as a re-adaptation, I would say. Right. If, 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 it's, if the original is already adapted from something else, like, I would say if it's being made again, it's not, so, it's not really fair to call it a remake. Peter Jackson didn't remake a Ralph Bakshi film or Bakshi film. He just made a new version of a Tolkien novel. Because Lord of the Rings was a cartoon. Oh right, in the yeah, 70s. you would, yeah, right, yeah. okay. But you, it wasn't yeah, like, oh, Peter say Jackson's that. doing a remake of you that cartoon say that. from the seventies. Yeah, that those are a remake. Yeah. Um, but his King Kong film, on the other hand, was it a remake of the Dino De Laurentiis seventies movie, or was it a remake? <laughs> Of the early 30s. Uh, that would be weird. If he was like, I'm remaking King Kong. And they're like, <laughs> really? That's crazy. Yes. The 1970s version. No one would see that coming. And they're bringing back Jeff Bridges. Uh, anyway, we should probably wrap it up. <laughs> okay. So uh, from the Ravicon Collective Studio, I'm Max. I'm Tim. And we'll talk to you next time. Goodbye. <laughs>